Who are the warriors? I want them all. I want all the warriors. Send the word. Welcome to episode 111 of the Film 89 podcast and our first episode of 2024. Apologies for the hiatus, but we've been beset by the intrusion of real life and responsibility, which meant that we needed to take a break from the podcast after our mammoth Return of the King episode back in December. But fear not, a remnant of that very episode. He no longer needs the lengthy introduction he once had. You all know him and love to listen to his learned expertise. It's filmmaker, podcast producer, and gang affiliate, Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill, welcome back. Uh, You know, I don't need the long introduction, but I won't say it doesn't make me feel better, that's for sure. (laughs) Rub that ego a bit. (laughs) Two episodes in a row, Bill? Uh, Yeah, it feels like a real milestone, huh? Or at least the last episode of 2023 and the first one of 2024, so I think of like baby New Year crawling in the room. So, as you'll already know, dear listeners, as you're listening to this, the film we've chosen to discuss tonight is Walter Hill's 1979 cult classic, The Warriors. Now, Bill, you and I have threatened to do an episode on The Warriors for a while now. I think initially we were going to do it for its 40th anniversary. It just blows my mind to think that's already five years ago. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Well, now it's the film's 45th anniversary. So, what does The Warriors mean to you, and when did you first see it? Boy, you know, it played on TV all the goddamn time uh, back in the New York area on our local affiliates. It was one of those movies that even though it was controversial back in the day, strange, it's hard to like, you know, envisage that, but it's it's true. Um, But I think by the time the 80s rolled around, the late 80s and the early 90s, it was really the stuff of Sunday afternoons, like a 2 p.m. on a rainy day on, on your syndicated television. You know, and not for nothing, it was a New York City movie. Uh, So it had some elements of what we were all living nearby in the New York City area, the tri-state area. Uh, So I think I saw, you know, bits and pieces of it along the way. You know, the thing that I think everybody quotes as a kid was uh, Luther, you know, yelling, warriors come out and play. You know, it's like, I think that that 
is like the big takeaway from this that anybody who wants to sort of shriek at each other inside of a classroom or in a hallway at school or you know outside as you're breaking beer bottles behind a convenience store everyone starts yelling warriors come out and play after the the inimitable david patrick kelly delivery on that but you know now i look at it as just a key artifact in my favorite era in new york city filmmaking i don't know it's not a coincidence that a couple of years ago uh, on on the sister podcast, Wrong Real, friend of our per- friend of the show, James Hancock and I, and a few others, we did some walk arounds for movie locations, and we covered Nighthawks, you know, the Sylvester Stallone movie that still doesn't get as much love as it might otherwise be uh, have earned, and you know, watching these films as a, as a bundle, I just think like. From taking a Pelham one, two, three up until about like Manhattan, there's something about the, you know, it was a John Lindsay era into Ed Koch, Mayor Walties. Uh, way before I moved to New York City, I was still a suburban kid. There's something about that that just dances on film, you know, and this movie, and we'll get into it, but this movie just looks, it looks beautiful. I mean, as gross as it is, as weird and sweaty as it is, it's fucking beautiful. Oh, God, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll come to the look of the film, but talking about my own personal experience with it. This is probably, I'd say, that one of the earliest kind of R-rated films I ever saw. But I was thinking it wouldn't have been the uncut version. It would have been the syndicated TV version that I saw. A lot of the F-bombs probably would have been removed. Uh, whether or not the violence would have been toned down, I couldn't tell you. But I definitely remember this is one of those films that my father, I, I, I heard him talk about. He would mention to me saying, like, you know, when you're old enough, uh, you know, I think that's a film you're going to enjoy. And then he got to the point where I, I probably wasn't old enough to watch it. And, and he let me watch it, uh, probably the TV version. And it stuck with me. And it was always one of those kind of handful of kind of R-rated films that I sort of cherished having been able to watch at a young age. And then, you know, when I, I, I watched it when I was kind of, older and, and old enough to appreciate it and also to watch the, the the full version it just sort of never went down in my estimations I, I never looked at it as kind of kooky and and sort of hyper realistic sort of comic book which a lot of people have, have said you know and, and, and it is it definitely is you know a sort of hyper realized version of reality but yes yeah, it's, it's just always been one of my favorite films and like you bill i've got a love of, of that era of, of filmmaking and, and american filmmaking in particular and it, it's just it seems to represent new york before the big cleanup you know that same new york that we saw in so many films like you mentioned like taxi driver you know another film that's really close to my heart and yeah and, and i also love those little compact films which are set in one night films like after hours the the terminator totally different film but that little concept of a film set in the city over the course of one night or 48 hours two nights you might say yeah yeah but obviously you know a film which he'd make three years later so it was based on the novel by Saul Urich he wrote the original book as a rebuttal to the kind of romanticized view of street gangs presented in films like Robert Wise's West Side Story and it was based on his own experience as a New York City welfare department worker have you read the original book Bill you don't read books do you no, I haven't. I haven't gone anywhere near a book in years. You won't. You won't catch me dealing with that kind of gutter filth. So no, I didn't. I didn't read the Saul Urich book. And producer Lawrence Gordon approached Walter Hill with the prospect of adapting Urich's book. Hill's previous film, The Driver, the year before, pretty much flopped, and thankfully, The Warriors was then already in production prior to the lack of su- success of The Driver. Otherwise, it may never have been greenlit. Hill chose to simplify the structure of the book. Saul Urich's original book, upon which the film is based, the, the gang was called the Coney Island Dominators, and Hill's original conception of the gang was that it would be an all-black gang, but that idea was nixed by the studio. And the gang, in the film, as depicted, has got this nice multicultural feel to it, as do several other gangs seen in the film. Now, Hill says that the film is 
very much class conscious, but it's not race conscious. And there was even in the original script a gang of an all gay male gang called the Dingoes, but they were cut out apparently due to the additional costs of making yet more costumes and the proposed costumes done by costume designer Bobby Mannix for this particular gang was supposed to be really elaborate and it just came down to budget cuts, if you believe that. And the film then opens with a nighttime image of the famous Wonder Wheel at Coney Island, where, of course, the, the film will end, but it'll end at daytime. Waterhill's favourite genre was the Western, and trains feature in many of his films and prominently in this film. And as we see, the film's titular gang getting on a train, composer Barry DeVore's on score kicks in, and we have this, this opening title sequence of all these gangs making their way to this big meeting in Central Park and the montage it's kind of cut isn't it with brief dialogue scenes between the members of the Warriors gang which was apparently originally part of a, a longer opening to the film what do you think of the film's opening Bill? Yeah you know that's one of those things that could be very much uh, a Thelma Schoonmacher Scorsese type invention where you know you chop up something that was shot and you say ah we can't use this fucking thing we got it but maybe we can do something with it and to use it that essentially as exposition, as character, as a style book of what you're gonna see visually. And you mix it in with those gorgeous titles that come, you know, the camera's mounted to the front of a subway uh, car, the, the engine of a subway car as it's traveling on the tracks and the titles zoom into place, hold, and then they zoom out of place, you know, in that sort of scripty warrior's font. It's, it's really economic. I mean, talk about turning disadvantage into advantage. It's Walter Hill saving some of this footage and, you know, really using it to its best to, his best aspects yeah and it's the music as well but it's also that kind of sinister like the opening synth when you see the wonder wheel just before the kind of you know the main warriors theme tune kicks in there's always this kind of um edginess to the score and, and, and to the film in general which what's the film it's like 93 minutes it, it, it's it's lean man yeah. it is lean it's, it's kind of like that sweet spot i always say that i, I lament the death of the 90 minute film yeah and i think this is certainly one of the best examples and talking about the editing, there were four editors on The Warriors, one of which was Billy Weber, who had worked on Terence Malick's Badlands and had just prior to working on The Warriors finished Days of Heaven, also for Malick. He's spoken about how much of an editing challenge the film's opening was, in so much as which gang should they focus on. And I think you just get a good idea as to the fact that you see all of these different gangs, they've all got their own, you know, unique outfits. And having watched this now in the new 4K remastered version, which was released just before Christmas by Arrow Video, the color palette of this film. I I've always seen it as quite, uh, it's colorful in certain aspects, but overall quite kind of muted because it's got that kind of grimy look to it with like a nice grain feel. But God, the way this film has been scrubbed up now, anytime where you see red in the film, be it crimsons like the warrior's jackets, brake lights on the Turnbull AC's bus, the lights on the trains, the actual warrior's font itself, it just jumps off the screen. That you know, the film has just been scrubbed up and it just looks incredible and it just sounds pin sharp and it, it just kind of kind of adds a new layer to the film to kind of seeing it as good as it ever looked before oh in fact bill have you ever seen the warriors theatrically uh theatrically that's a good question i feel like i have but it wasn't uh, it wasn't anytime recently the last few times i saw it have been the um i guess it's the director's cut that we have access to now with the comic book interstitials the way the way walter hill wanted to see it and of course i'm pretty sure i, I the first dvd release which would have been early 2000s back in standard def dvds which was the theatrical release uh without the extra footage without the tinkering but still a pretty good transfer so in my head, that's the version I still remember seeing is, you know, what, what probably, I don't know, it wasn't a VHS transfer, it was like a probably a 35 millimeter transfer. It was in pretty good shape. 
with the muted colors, with the grain, uh, but happy to see it without all the comic book interstitials. And we can get into that too. That might be a sort of like um, quotient of what it's like looking for it now. I don't know if the 4K version that you uh, that you have is the Walter Hill approved new transitional version or if it's the essential pure theatrical version or maybe your version has both. Yeah, it's been re-released by a couple of labels. I think Imprint released it a few years ago and then the recent Arrow one has got both versions on as the Imprint one did, but it kind of puts the theatrical one kind of at the yeah. forefront. I think that's that's really it's really where we want to go. I mean, I feel like we're kind of be, that's what one we're going to be talking about for the most part. Well, in fact, they they no longer label the 2005 version, the director's cut. They call it the 2005 alternate cut, which you know I guess this whole set that Arrow has released would have had to have Walter Hill's approval and certainly the approval of Paramount, who is licensed from. Yeah, I I, I guess you know Hill is kind of um, subtly and humbly admitted. That that his 2005 version is just not popular with fans of the film. Yeah, I think there's a cult to this for sure, and not just the the convention people who like to show up dressed up as Swan. You know, I think the whole idea of tinkering with your work the way Lucas did with uh, THX and adding all this depth, this visual depth that he didn't have the budget and the time to work on in 79, I mean, it's a nice intellectual idea, and it's the stuff of a lot of interviews and the stuff of like DVD extras to hear about it. It's another thing to go back in and start asking the the you know the companies to to invest money on new uh, packages that essentially we never asked for, nor do we think really improves the film. That's just my feeling on it. Yeah, I think this is the sort of decision that is kind of akin to when Zack Snyder had his theatrical cut of Watchmen, then he released a longer and in my eye, superior director's cut. And then he went a step further and he released what he, what was called the ultimate cut, which inserted the animated tales from the Black Freighter story, which was part of the original book. And it was kind of like this side story that was kind of seen to be a parallel of the main story being told in Watchmen. And I, I just think the insertion of all of that extra animated stuff into the director's cut just ruined the flow of the film and was just totally unnecessary and there was also that jarring thing of you going from like this gritty comic book film ultimately but still you know a live action film to this animated story and the relevance of inserting that just seemed kind of lost on me but what hill did with this 2005 version i just think you didn't need to signpost the comic book sensibilities of the film if you, if you couldn't see from the you know the kind of heightened reality that he created in the original 1979 version and you needed that amplified then you know I just think it was just unnecessary and I re I, I've avoided re-watching that film in preparation for this episode I, I will get around to watching it just as a curiosity but I having owned it previously on DVD and that having been the only copy of the film I had available to me for quite some time thankfully now the theatrical version has kind of resurfaced and been deemed the kind of the canon version of the film thankfully because yeah i am just not a fan of the 2005 alternate cut i don't want to slur people who are suffering from traumatic brain injuries or, or have mercury poisoning but i mean honestly if you don't watch the warriors the way it was intended at the beginning and you don't, like you say you don't catch the idea that you're seeing an adventure movie that is quite literally an adventure movie with a capital a and it's got a few fucks and, and, you know, sexual situations, you know, quasi-rapes thrown in. Then it's like, I got nothing for you. Maybe movies aren't really the thing you should focus on in terms of your media diet. Mm, yeah. So going back to the film, Cleon, in this opening title sequence, is established early on as the leader of the gang. But as we'll soon see, he's killed and Swan, played by Michael Beck, steps up to lead the gang back to their home turf. So this big meeting between... Most of the gangs from across New York is orchestrated by gang leader Cyrus to unite them as this unstoppable force that outnumbers the police at least four to one. 
You're standing right now with nine delegates from a hundred gangs. And there's over a hundred more. That's 20,000 hardcore members, 40,000 counting affiliates, and 20,000 more not organized, but ready to fight. 60,000 soldiers. Now there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? And then we see Durin Cyrus's big speech to these thousands of assembled extras and, and the, the feat of doing that as well because apparently a lot of these extras were actual gang members who were willing to participate and as we'll come on to now Walter Hill had lots of gang related problems during the making of this film we then see this handgun being passed to David Patrick Kelly who plays Luther leader of the rogues he then shoots and kills Cyrus and all hell breaks loose the cops arrive and before Cleon is able to get away he's blamed by Luther as being responsible for killing Cyrus and is beaten to death now Going back to what I was saying about the gangs, Hill and executive producer Frank Marshall underestimated how difficult it would be to get permission from many of the real-life New York gangs to shoot at the various boroughs and gang-controlled areas of New York. There were at least 70 real-life gangs active in New York City in the early 1970s. And as comic book as this film may seem, one man actually in real life had the idea of a peace treaty between the gangs and in the early 1970s tried to do this and tried to unite them, but the police saw the potential threat that this would pose and, allegedly, in inverted commas, they uh, took him out. Going back to why this kind of may have appealed to Hill, though he grew up with chronic asthma and he spent very little time in school compared to other children. So could it be that the the, the concept of gangs uniting like-minded males kind of appealed to him and that's what drew him to the book and then to, you know, adapting it into this film? It's interesting. You know, the other thing is that Walter Hill is as California as California guys get. You know, he, he is from a coast away uh, you know, a Los Angeles man is, you know, he has very different impulses than shooting movies in New York. Like, I, I think that he came out of that George Lucas generation of guys who grew up in the California sun, you know, bathed in Westerns. Like you say, there's definitely something more sunny and Mesa and cactus and coastline about his his whole uh, outlook on life. And the fusion of that guy with the, you know, what is arguably the grittiest period in New York history, or I should say just before, just before the dawn comes into the uh, 1990s in New York City. It's just, it's a strange mix that he would have been gravitated to this place that's so far away from him, both you know geographically and and sort of culturally and taste wise. But I think that's probably why you know he invests the warriors with a lot of like classic film tropes, or it does wind up standing up to westerns. It has that feeling of like a three ten to Yuma a little bit because it just it it, it has all these classical themes. Even if the actors who are in this movie aren't your traditional actors who are delivering western performances. Yeah, and, you know, the, the story itself could fit, you know, the Western template. You know, the original story that it's based on is about this um, Greek army. Was it was it Greek that um, they kind of ventured into into the Persian Empire? And, oh, yes, yeah. yeah you know, on, on this sort of mission, the Persian Empire was apparently an upheaval. They saw an opportunity. They went in. Everything went wrong. And they found themselves on the back foot trying to head back uh, over to Greece. And the, the kind of... The way that the, the that story ended is when they knew that when they got to the sea, that was salvation, and 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 they they were safe. Something which is kind of mirrored in in the book and in the film. Yeah, wasn't it that um, Hill was set to do a western around about or just before finishing the driver that fell through, and then 
he was approached by Larry Gordon then after that project failed with the Warriors. So clearly there was that sort of desire to tell you know, a very male-centric tale in him. Although if you look at this big run of films starting with Hard Times in 72, going up to, you know, 48 hours, pretty much all, like, male-centric films, maybe with the exception of Streets of Fire. But again, you know, that, that that's kind of a similar ballpark. Yeah, and he he is part of this cohort, guys like Milius, who were tough dudes, you know. Even though Milius had this sort of conflicting... It's hard to reconcile the surfer and the sort of arms enthusiast that John Milius is. You know, these guys all made very metal uh, movies about tough guys who came up... They, they were exhibiting almost that sort of greatest generation palette of values, you know, that, that these guys' parents would have uh, exhibited. You know, I, I don't know if Walter Hill's family had anything to do with World War II, but there's a good chance that they sort of came from, you know, real tough stock, pre, you know, early 20th century type values of, of hard-nosed men, you know, probably drank too much and the women who abetted them. And a lot of that, you know, romantic painting of like the thing out of Wyeth paintings or something like that. And so I, I could see some of those values being replicated here. Just, you know, from, it must have been what he grew up the stew that he just grew up soaked inside of yeah and you know that comparison there with someone like john melius who i'm pretty sure sometimes that john melius kind of plays up his sort of conservative lean-ins a bit just for effect and and having listened to hours of interviews with walter hill i if you look at certain aspects of the warriors as well kind of how you know ahead of his time it is in terms of um inclusivity you know the multiculturalism in the film which was all apparently his doing and which was a big departure from the book because when the studio said no we don't want it to be an all black gang or or feature all hispanic gangs and and have them all to be people of color forming these gangs he kind of went the other way and kind of went you know the very multicultural route and then there's there was also that proposed element of there being an all gay male gang as well and i just wonder how that would have you know kind of washed in 1979 and to me he seems very much ahead of his time in terms of the those sort of values that he puts into the film yeah, also, the, you know, New York City was known as this palette. I mean, you know, you're going to go to, say, a gang of gay men, which is a little, uh, perhaps a little ridiculous on its face. But, you know, New York City had been known for the Stonewall uprisings, which I think took place in 1960, 1968, 1969. So the idea that, that gay men were able to throw bricks and, and, and throw fists and take care of themselves isn't, that's not so unusual. And I consume playing that up a little bit. And, you know, in this weird pa- palette, of, you know, like the, the Gramercy riffs, for instance, look like they look like Nation of Islam dudes, right? They're all these very stern black men who were in karate geese and they're wearing like reflective aviator. They have that martial discipline that, 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 that the Nation of Islam uh, like to reflect. And so I can see you're taking little bits and pieces of culture from New York. You know, I mean, even the baseball furies are guys that are wearing pinstripes. They're essentially wearing New York Yankee jerseys. You know, not that there was a group of people who swung baseball bats in Central Park, but, you know, it is a little bit of the tapestry. You know, it, it it's just a one step away from having the hot dog vendors, you know, the guys who ran the carts and they just, you know, they, they threw red hots at you, you know, and like that's part of that's out there on the streets. That is part of the sort of raw grittiness of New York. That's only in New York. Yeah, well, you know, the baseball theories are both uh, baseball fans and uh, clearly they love uh, the rock group Kiss. That's true. Yes. And, and regarding the riffs, just you just don't mess with a guy that wears aviator shades at night time. You you, you in, know that he means business. In in like a concrete cellar, yeah. Those guys are <laughs> those are some badass guys. They're all wearing they they wearing sandals, karate gis, and they're like in ranks. I think that the, the Gramercy riffs are the only group that really kind of frightens me, and especially at the end. You know, spoiler alert when they when they get to Luther, that screech he gives. I'm like, that's a pretty earned scream. I don't want to be closed in on by the Gramercy yeah. riffs. I don't think. 
Well, speaking of the rifts, um, as the warriors regroup and make their way home, we then see the rifts assembled and, and making plans to spread the word of the warriors' alleged killing of Cyrus. And then we see that distinctive mouth and hear the dulcet tones of the radio DJ played by Lynn Thigpen with her coded announcements to the other gangs. And the first song then that she drops, dedicated to the warriors, is Nowhere to Run. We mentioned like the comic book look of the film. Now, Bobby Mannix, you know, she did all these incredible costumes in the film. Outfitting all the gangs in these distinctive and, and memorable clothing just to make them, you know, as many of them look differentiated from other gangs as possible. And like I say, the baseball theories with that um, kind of kiss homage and that cool face paint. But one of the features that was on the, the recent Arrow set was an interview with Mannix. And, and she's kept everything. All the, the Polaroid she took, all the initial designs of all the gang logos, the outfits. Like the work that she put into this film is just incredible. And... You know, the look of the film, and in particular the outfits, is has always been for me one of the things that stands up. Like, how how cool are those those warriors' waistcoats? <laughs> well, they show up on film. I mean, I think rule number one is to do costumes that, you know, A, look, make the actors look good, make them look sexy, make them look fuckable, make them look tough. But then B, you got to read all the detail on them, too. I assume that they were stitched leather or maybe some sort of pleather that imitated the, that look of leather. But yeah, it's they are very each each group has their own palette and the warriors that deep burgundy, um, you know, and then everybody sort of dresses up their thing a little different. Um, you know, the one dude wears a headdress. People wear um, uh, bandanas. A couple of dudes wear like a hoodie underneath the the vest. You know, I, I like the fact that that's their colors. As I say later, you know, you're wearing your colors. But the colors show up on film. I mean, rule number one is just make your actors look good and it gets the job done. Yeah, and you can even see in, in like her designs that she actually was the one who put in place that differentiation between individual members of the Warriors gang. You've got the fact that Cowboy, for his namesake, wears a cowboy hat. Cochise has got these kind of um, you know Native American hair threads and beads and stuff. You've got Rembrandt, you know the artist who carries his little clutch bag with his cans of spray paint. You know they've all got their kind of little kind of quirks and, and the sort of identifying sort of marks about them. So we then see our gang hiding under a bridge, waiting for the Turnbull ACs to pass. And it's, it's here we see some of the best examples of the nighttime cinematography by Andrew Laszlo with those neon lights reflecting off the wet floors. And again, the, the decision to make the Turnbull ACs a skinhead gang. Multi- <laughs> yes, yeah. now, that's true. I don't, know, I don't know how this would track in America, Bill, but making this gang multiracial is it's an interesting choice because certainly at the time in the UK, skinheads were and to this day i guess still are associated with far right wing white supremacists the, the skinheads of, of britain of, of of that period would have been you know they wouldn't have been multicultural at all and it's just an interesting choice to go with like a multicultural look for all of these skinheads you know driving around in this bus yeah but in, in the certain uh, the way that it puts everything into a blender you know again the reality would have been a lot grimmer obviously because you would have assumed that most of these gangs would have been african-americans and they would have been from more or less uptown they would have been from uh, harlem and the bronx and you know those are those are among the rougher neighborhoods in new york the most given to financial dispossession certainly some places out in queens and brooklyn as well Bed- bedford stuyvesant brownsville places like that bushwick those are those were tough ass places to go from and coney island was not a very nice place to be either uh, but yeah but you know what you do is you absolve the uh, racial thing you decomplicate it 
you said the class was, was really more what you're conscious of, the fact that these, um, it, it's it's even interesting because you say the Gramercy Riffs, that neighborhood of Gramercy is one of the toniest, most expensive pieces of property in all of Manhattan. Like now, it's really difficult to get in the neighborhood because the supply of, of inventory doesn't turn over a whole lot. And, you know, if you can afford it, then you're the kind of person who doesn't have to ask what the price of those apartments are. They're multi-million dollar apartments because it's a very, very nice place to be. Uh, and to think that that is a group filled with dudes who look like, you know, uh, one percenters or whatever they were, you know, like it looks like the nation of Islam. So, yeah, I, I would agree when you get this look at the Turnbull ACs and they're all riding inside this uh, sorcerer type of jerry rigged, welded together bus with its floodlights and a bunch of dudes like wielding bats and, 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 and wood. And, you know, it's a mixture of black dudes, Hispanic dudes and white dudes coming at you. Yeah, I guess they're, they're going to kill you. It doesn't matter if they got their heads shaved, but it's another form of intimidation, I'm sure. So, Bill, for an outsider such as myself, who's kind of New York experience is limited to that of, you know, trips to Manhattan, how accurate is the geography portrayed in the film with the Warriors and their journey from Central Park eventually out to Coney Island? Well, you know, the nice thing is, is that it's all other than the few, first of all, it's at night. So it, it covers up a little bit one neighborhood, one block and play another without giving itself up. Although every single uh, location has been accounted for by location freaks. That's, you know, one of those sort of geocaching things people love to do is find out, you know, what's been shot where and what actual neighborhood was this. So luckily, you know, things there's a lot of it that takes place in the subways and the subways are dressed. One dresses up as another pretty easily. And in this case, I think the Union Square sequence was shot up on 96th street because it was easier to close that off at night you know they would shoot from like midnight to like 5 30 or so they only had a couple of hours to get these nighttime shoots so everything that's underground is you know easily camouflageable one tile wall of a subway with the turnstiles could sort of dupe in for another and unless you're the savvy observer who knows which stop was which back in the day I think that's going to pass the muster. But as far as the streets at night, you know, I mean, I, again, I probably have walked around most of these locations without realizing I was walking around them. Much like you can go past the bank from dog day afternoon is mostly, that block is mostly unchanged in Park Slope. And you, when you're walking through there, you honestly, you won't even occur to you that this was the block where dog day afternoon was shot by Sidney Lumet. It's pretty wild. Mm. Um, but in, in, you know, like in this case, the nice thing is, is that shooting it at night and underground, you know, whatever they tell you where they are you believe it you go with it i mean the the actual route is correct i believe that um the the, the only thing they, they sort of um the time gets it would probably take you two and a half three hours to get from the bronx all the way to coney island it, it, if you're leaving from manhattan it takes you about 60 minutes to get up to coney island so the whole night would have been a lot longer than they sort of make the train ride out to be but i mean who cares about that that's just like freaking ephemeral details that's that's not important at all well, obviously, they, you know, they have a couple of uh, run-ins with various people along the way, which kind of slows them down. So then the Warriors then, they make it onto the train and away from the Turnbull ACs, and then they venture into the territory of this lesser-known gang, the Orphans. And it's at that point we meet Mercy, the, the only female member of the main cast in the film, played by Deborah Van Valkenburg. Mercy is, I think, probably the most complex and maybe densely written character in the film, because she's certainly the one who experiences the, the most character progression. Now, originally, Fox, played by Thomas Waits, he was going to be the central character in the film, but this was later changed as the shoot went on, which we'll come to shortly. The orphans initially let the warriors pass through their territory, and Mercy leaves them to follow the warriors, but the orphans then catch up with them, and they aren't as welcoming as they were earlier, and Swan, with the use of a well-placed Molotov cocktail, uh, affects the warriors' escape from yet another gang onto another train. But now with this girl Mercy in tow. The cops catch up with them. Is it at the 96th Street subway station? 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and then the gang, they're all split up, and it's here where, if you look closely, when Mercy and Fox run into this cop on the subway, who then has a bit of a tussle with him on the floor, they roll around, and he pushes Fox into the path of an oncoming train. That is not Thomas Waits, but it's a stunt double. Now, Waits apparently had his own ideas as to what he thought the film should be. And instead of this story about gang violence with a comic book feel, one which we eventually had, he felt that it was this romance story with these characters finding themselves, and in particular his character of Fox, and this love interest, which would have been his love interest, Mercy, showing him that there was a life beyond these gangs. Now, Waits apparently fought Hill on almost every aspect of the shoot and disagreed with the vision that Hill had for the film. And then seven weeks into the shoot, Hill said to the stunt coordinator, Craig R. Baxley, and Neil, this is for you, he was, of course, the stunt coordinator on the A-Team. He was also the stunt coordinator on Predator, and he was the director of, and this is Neil's going to love this one, the 1990 Dolph Lundgren action sci-fi film, which Neil likes to mention as often as he can on Film 89, <laughs> Dark Angel. Hill said to Baxley, look, I don't want Waits in the film anymore. And Baxley was actually the guy who stood in for Waits that was fighting the cop on the platform. And then, of course, character of Fox was killed off. What, what do you think of this whole thing with um, with Tom Waits? Because apparently they've they sort of buried the hatchet and both of them have kind of accepted that they could have dealt with the situation differently. Certainly, uh, Waits and, and the kind of sort of diva behavior that he was exhibiting on the shoot. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it's it's um, you know they look back on it as old men and and Tom Waits. I don't think Tom Waits, not the not the singer Tom Waits, the actor Thomas Waits. It looks like he never had the career that maybe was was due to him because he is such an intrinsic part of our of our genre childhood. Because you can talk about him as uh, you know in, in the thing. I mean that he's it's a couple of silver bullets in this guy's resume. It's really important. If you ask me, this is where I'll sort of veer off the the, the orthodoxy a little bit because he's there's I don't think there's any disputation that Thomas Waits is. 10 times more charismatic than Michael Beck. Michael Beck is the kind of guy you can see they were trying to put over the top a little bit, like his agents. I think he had good agents. Unfortunately, they had terrible taste because the other big movie that you would know Michael Beck from is, is Xanadu, the Olivia Newton-John musical fiasco, which is not, I, I, I have watched it, projected in the last, I would say, six or seven years. It is not a good movie. It does not hold up. Uh, it's a curiosity. It's one of those sort of like bad movie fest type films, you know, but that's all that needs to be said about that. So, yeah, Michael Beck doesn't get a chance to do a lot of acting. Either he wasn't asked to or he wasn't able to sort of like break out of his rigid idea of what he thought Swan should be. And I think Thomas Waits, let's say if it, it had been his character at the lead of this, I think it would have given you a, a lot more uh, of a nuanced human portrayal. I think that, you know, uh, Thomas Waits' face is a lot rounder and softer, and his eyes are more accessible than Michael Beck, who maintains the steely exterior. And maybe it would have that would have sailed in a Western in like 1952. Uh, and I mean, again, it's fine for this film, but I could see a different version of this film. You know, with just that slight change, it would have made it, you know, I think it would have seen the thing that Waits wanted to go for. He could have done more with the role of the lead than maybe Michael Beck did. See, Bill, I just can't move past Michael Beck and Swan. He just, for me, is the guy that steps up to the plate and he's this kind of steely, cool, you know, leader of the Warriors. I, I just just never buy Thomas Waits has been able to fulfill that same role. No, I guess you're right. And you know what it makes me think of? Another Walter Hill produced movie, Aliens, where Michael Bean plays a guy who essentially has to take over leading when the CO is killed in action. And, you know, Michael Bean does such an interesting job of being someone who's like, I'm not worthy, I'm just a grunt. 
you know, and it's like essentially Michael Beck's character Swan is in the same position where after Cleon is taken out, he steps up. You know, he's now war chief. And it's like, you know, he has to become the leader that, you know, he doesn't seem to have any kind of crisis of confidence about being the leader. And that's the only thing. Maybe Thomas Waits could have done something a little different than that. But I, maybe I'm taking the Michael Beanness of what he did in Aliens and moving it onto this movie and thinking, well, I would have appreciated seeing a little bit more of that. I love that title, War Chief. I want to be a war chief one day. Yeah, well, you know the podcast. The podcast does not have a war chief. It's true. We got a, we got a spray paint guy, but not a war chief. So then, uh, Swan, Ajax, Cowboy, and Snow. When they get out of the train station, get away from the cops, and who's waiting for them? The baseball furies. So, Bill, let's talk about one of the well, certainly for me, the great foot chases in all the film. Oh Jesus, man, that's just exhausting watching the fucking yeah. guys run. Now, apparently, Michael Beck, kind of, he, he trained and trained and he'd go to the gym and he'd just run and run and run just so that when he was running throughout the film, he never looked exhausted and he kept his physical fitness up. Yeah. Now, originally, Hill didn't, he didn't want this confrontation scored, which just baffles me. And it was producer Larry Gordon who insisted that it had to be scored, mainly because Gordon was concerned that because this was baseball bats against human bodies, it was obviously... A concern of his as, as to how brutal it would be, especially if the fight was just boiled down to just sound effects. But there's that thing about Devore's on score being just propelling the film all the time, and there's no scene that if it's better than this foot chase. And this this has always been the, the scene that I've kind of, as a kid, just gravitated towards. The look of the baseball furies who doesn't love a good chase scene, and, and the way that you can see Cowboy flagging and Ajax just looking at him, kind of looking at him and, like to the side, thinking, "Yeah, yeah, go on, go on, just stop," because uh, that's all Ajax wants to do is fight, isn't it? Yeah, he's tired of running. It's awesome. As soon as Cowboy says he can't go on anymore, then he says, "Good, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm done running from these." <laughs> quite quite a lot of um, certain <laughs> f words coming from Ajax, isn't it? That wouldn't track so well in 2023. Yeah, much like Walter Hill's script for 48 Hours having a lot of the word uh, that Nick Nolte uses against it. Yeah. Yeah, Walter Hill, his scripts are larded with a lot of what you call colorful metaphors, mm. as uh, Captain Kirk would say. But I don't know if that's so much a, a, a comment on the character of Ajax, this sort of hyper-masculine guy who just lives to fight and screw whatever is nailed down. And, <laughs> you know, he's, he's just like the ultimate toxic jackass, isn't he? Well, he's, he's pure id, you know? Yeah. Like, he's he's the id of the group. And, I mean, yeah, he's toxic, but what I really like is that, um, I mean, you know, if if, you've, if if anyone here is a follower of, of, of the, career, the career of James Remar, and I believe anybody who loves movies is, you know, he, he's played a number of, like, wildcat freaks along the way. Like, when he shows up in something, it usually means bad business. He he didn't start to leaven his, his image until probably the, the 2000s when he was an old man, as he was pushing his mid-50s or so. And... He played one of um, Kim Cattrall's boyfriends in Sex and the City. He had like a 10-episode run of that series. You know, it's like that's when he can no longer play these ass-kickers and these like real malefactors. But there's something about him. You know, I think he was a theater-trained dude, much like uh, David Patrick Kelly. Like these guys had real chops in terms of like live performance. They were filled with curiosity, filled with brio. And, you know, I can see a real invention in Ajax. You know, I, there's something really committed to it because he doesn't... The guy doesn't pull off the accelerator for a single line reading of this movie. It's pretty mm. awesome. So what did Remar do after this? He did, um, wasn't he the bad guy in 48 Hours? He certainly was. And then four years later, he uh, gets the role of Hicks in Aliens. But I, I love that. Yep, yep. Yeah, that doesn't play out, does it? No, he had a little trouble uh, flying to London, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> 
Never heard it put like that before. But yeah, he uh, Cameron kind of um, kicked him off pretty early on, didn't he? Although I think one shot still remains where uh, you see the back of him as Hicks. I think it's when they're looking into that shot of the alien nest and there was like this um, miniature rear projected. And oh, I'm yeah, pretty sure yeah. that's the one remaining shot of James Remar in Aliens as Hicks. Well, didn't he make it like four or five weeks into shooting? It was some decent chunk of time, I thought. Yeah, yeah. So Cochise, Rembrandt and Vermin, they arrive at Union Station, but the others aren't there. And they're met by a group of women who we later discover are another gang called the Lizzies. Now, having beaten Seven Bells out of the Fury, Swan and Co are making their way through a park, and Ajax stops when he sees this lone woman on a park bench, played by Mercedes Rule in, I think, her film debut. Yeah, yeah. So he falls for this trap, and he shows himself to be a real scumbag when he forces himself on her, and then she handcuffs him to the park bench, and we find out that she's an undercover cop. She blows that whistle for a long time, doesn't she, before backup arrives. Hey, man, that cop car was nowhere near. She wanted to make sure that her backup heard. Yeah, yeah. I, I just love the kind of extended reaction by Ajax towards her, where he's just like this animal with his foot in a bear trap. He's kind of just <laughs> That's a per- perfect way to put it. Yeah, he, he's he's pulling at the handcuff, and and you could just see if he didn't have that glove on, he would be cutting into his wrist. You know, with this cuff, he's just clawing at her, trying to get her. And you could see that you know she could back off away from him, but she's she's still scared that he's going to break free. And he's like, you know, even though he's like chained to a gigantic like 150 pound bench. He, he still seems like, I will take you bastards. I will take both of you cops. I will yeah. scratch and claw at you. As you like, get close to me and I will just like eat away at you with whatever martial reserve I have. And, and that's it. That's Ajax out of the picture. That's that's their muscle gone. Because yeah. I think in the original story of the, of the Greeks, Ajax was like this nine foot tall guy that was just like a, a, a human war machine. So then Swan, he meets up with Mercy. She's now wearing this jacket, but she's acquired. And, and apparently the reason for that is because Deborah Van Valkenburg shot her right arm in plaster after breaking it. So from that point onwards, she's kind of disguising this plaster on her, her right forearm. They then run into more cops in the subway, and then they make their way into the subway tunnel. Meanwhile, with the Lizzie's. Now, apparently Rembrandt was supposed to be coded as a gay character. And he was played by a gay actor. So he is the one that's immune to the seduction of these women. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, now much like the other gangs that we've seen, again, with the Lizzie's, they're, again, very multicultural. Something that permeates not just this film, but a lot of Walter Hill's films. Back in the subway then, Swan and Mercy kiss. And I really like the way that, that Hill has, in inverted commas, the romance play out between these two. Because she's like this hungry, sort of devil-may-care thrill-seeker, and Swan kind of seems to really disapprove of how she is, but there's still this attraction between the two of them. And that kiss as the train passes behind them, and then how she plays it after he breaks away. And again, kind of he really goes some way to slut-shame her. And, and it's just really played well between the two, especially her. I love her performance in this film. Yeah, now she's really good. She's, again, another theatre-trained actor. She knows what she's doing, you know. And then back with the Lizzie's, Rembrandt really starts to smell a rat, and then they make their move and, and prove themselves probably to be the worst shots with a handgun I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, yeah, but here's the thing, right? So uh, Baseball Furies are coded as the um, cyclope, Cyclopes, the Cyclops from Greek myth. You know, they, they have one eye and they're carrying clubs. That's the way Polyphemus the Cyclops had in the Odyssey. Yeah. The Lizzies are coded as the Lotus Eaters. They're essentially the, um, or the Sirens, I guess is a better, better way of putting it. They're singing men through their doom, you know, by essentially making them crash their ships onto rocks. You know, what they're you're, they're the only group of all women and they're not wearing colors. They just look like a bunch of 
around the way girls living in, they say it's Union Square, which was the neighborhood I lived in for 12 years or so. You know, it doesn't look like the Union Square I lived in. But I love the fact that when, when it comes time to throw down, all they do is pull out a bunch of 38s. It's like, it's the least, you know, like a couple of, you know, you, you have switchblades, you have pieces of wood, you have baseball bats, you have various, uh, uh, you know, various weapons along the way. But it's like these girls just cut to the chase and they pull out a bunch of 38 specials, just snub-nosed revolvers, and they shoot at point-blank range. And like stormtroopers, they completely miss the target every time. Yeah. I think doesn't Rembrandt Rembrandt hurt his arm? Because when they get into the alleyway and they've got to bandage it. Yeah. But oh, oh, but anyway, before we go any further, I, I want to rewind to um, uh, uh, Swan and uh, Deborah Van Welkenberg running off the platform. Do you, do you know, speaking of another cameo, uh, did you know who that policeman was that he throws the nightstick at and trips up? That's no. Sonny, Sonny Landon. From Predator, yeah. Billy. The, the very same. No way. That was one of his very first roles too. It's just more or less a stunt role, and it. But if you take a look, uh, Walter Hill does us the uh, favor. He slows that down. I don't know why he plays it. It's weird. He throws uh, the nightstick, and it trips up his legs. But the, the whole thing is like ground, like a peck and paw movie. The nightstick goes really slow, and it trips him up, and then it pecks back up when they jump off the subway platform and go down the hallway. But yeah, because the, it mentioned that there's a there's a couple of weird actors, like stunt actors, who you know made like it's like Craig R. Baxley was in this on camera. Irwin Keyes, who has a sort of very heavy-like face, he's been in a shitload of movies. Is like a, he plays one of the cops who's who's getting Ajax uh, as he's uh, handcuffed to the park bench. Filling out the trifecta was Sonny Landham in one of his first roles, but he's not nearly as yoked as he would be seven years later. That's for damn sure. Yeah, well, Sonny Landham, who'd have thought it? So then, Swan and Mercy having caught back up with the rest of the gang get cornered in a men's toilet by another gang, and this set was entirely constructed for the film. And, and this yeah. fight scene, this this really is the template for great toilet fight scene that would follow in films like James Cameron's True Lies, Mission Impossible Fallout for a recent one. Up from that sort of um, kind of hammy, quite silly sort of A-team fighting style, certainly that Craig Baxley was, was famous for. And I just love the finish with Swan sort of flipping that guy into the toilet stall and you just... It just freezes on his kind of reaction. And there's, there's like a tempo to the whole thing. It's, it's really well put together. And it's a really well-designed room, too. I know it's, you know, okay, they're going to build a shitter in a train station. I guess, you know, you don't have to think about it too hard. It's just going to be a square room. But, I mean, when it goes from the actual shooting on the platform, which, you know, there are toilets at the train stations, but believe me, you don't want anything to do with them. There's no gap in reality between the stuff on the platform and the stuff in the soundstage where they built the toilet. It is the perfect sort of approximation of what you'd expect the subway toilet to look like uh, at night. I mean, it's exactly the right amount of disgusting, exactly the right amount of defaced and, and graffitied. And yeah, it sets itself up for a really well choreographed fight in a confined space with dudes on roller skates who you think it'd be very easy to get the drop on. But hey, man, <laughs> I don't know. I've never tried punching a dude rolling around before. Yeah. I feel sorry for the guy at the end. Isn't it um, Snow who breaks a baseball bat against his torso? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that guy's never walking again, is he? No, that's rib, rib cage damn. You won't be able to oh, breathe yeah. for the next week. Yeah. So they again get away, and we have another scene on a subway train, and a moment's rest on the final stretch of their journey home. And one of, if not my favorite scenes in the film, when they encounter these rich prom kids. This this is so my favorite. Like, exactly. Yeah. It's my favorite scene, too. Yeah. And, and that uncomfortable, silent exchange between them. And I just love the way that Mercy just reaches up to fix her hair as she feels these... You know the the gaze of these rich kids looking at her and and judging her, and I just love the way that 
And again, little, little cool little touch by Michael Beck, the way Swan just moves her hand, just grabs it, stops her from fixing her hair, moves her hand away, you know, saying, you're fine just like you are. I, I just love that little moment. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how, considering Michael Beck really didn't add a lot of English to the ball for the rest of the... I mean, he's playing every other note very solid. You know, other than maybe the slut-shaming thing before you talk about the kiss happens, like, that too, I think, was a little bit of projection or at least trying to, like, uh, what do they call it in the parlance? Negging her? Like, trying to, like, say something bad. He doesn't really mean, but it's almost like a way of testing her to see if she's into him. And that's the same thing, where it's just that little note of... It's not avuncular, it's not fatherly, but it's that idea that I think you're beautiful. You are okay the way you... I mean, what I love the fact is that the camera shoots her from her toes up to her head and you see she's covered in, in you know, uh, schmutz from the subway. Her feet are dirty. She's, you know, like she's literally been through it all that night and he's like, fuck it, you're gorgeous. It's like, fuck these kids with their wide lapels and their frilly shirt. Maybe they're coming from a, a prom because they have like flowers on their lapels. Who the fuck knows where they're coming from? But it's like these ponces, you know, like they are not real people. They're going through a parallel experience and our bubble intersects with them in this one brief train ride and it's like we're going to keep our reality together and it's like you're one of the real people they are not i really do love that yeah i wonder if that little moment doesn't come from a sort of real life thing that happened because van valkenberg in one of the interviews says that her own boyfriend questioned whether she was right for the role in terms of her appearance saying you know doesn't the film want someone that's a bit more well endowed with a different look which i think is a real shitty thing to say to your girlfriend <laughs> She's then raised this with Walter Hill, and his response was, you were the unobvious choice for the role. Uh-huh. I kind of like that little play on words. Yeah, you know, I don't know what Deborah Van Valkenburg's like, ethnic makeup is, but I think that she's supposed to read as being like Puerto Rican or Dominican. There's, She looks Latino. I'm not really sure if she is, but she has this sort of darker color skin, the, 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 the sort of straight hair. She could pass for someone, you know, like an around-the-way girl. And yet, you know what? She has a very slim build. She's not wearing a bra. She's wearing a, a fitting top and a skirt, and she's running around in these, these strappy sandals, which could not have been comfortable. She's not ready for everything that happens during the rest of the night. You know, that's that's the nice thing. She, she's dressed in pink, and she looks like a relatively, even if she has like a ballerina's build, where she's, you know, she's very slim, she's not very curvy, but she's still beautiful, and there is a sexiness to her because the way she's dressed. It, it is a good contrast to everything else that's happening around her. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I, not, not for a single second do I think that she can't hold her shit. You know, she's just as much a product of these streets. And the fact that you can tell a, a, a young woman is going to have a whole set of, you know, mores and strictures placed upon her that all these like asshole dudes with their their washboard stomachs and their vests with no shirts on are, are not going to have. You know, she's going to be expected to be a girl, a lady. And I think Mercy's trying to prove that, you know what, as she says later, I like to travel. Have you been anywhere? No. But she just knows that she would like to travel. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a bigger world than just these shitty streets she's she's grown up on. Yeah, I just think a scene says, I don't know, there's so much being said here. And I just love that when she closes her eyes and then the, the kids get off the train, she opens them again and they're gone. There's just that really nice dissolve from Mercy to the sunrise as the, as the gang finally get to the Stillwell Avenue stop, which means they're back home in Coney Island. Yeah. And then Swan picks up the flowers that one of the girls dropped and he gives them to Mercy. And I think she says, why are you giving me that? He says, I, I hate to see things go to waste. Yeah, or, or I hate to see something beautiful go away. Something like that. Yeah, that's nice. And then they're back on their home turf. That, uh, that subway at Stillwell Avenue looks... I mean, other than the fact that there's, you know, it's cleaner, it's a little more gentrified. It's the same exact subway today as it is back then. If you really want to go back, in some ways, 
Coney Island has gentrified with the city. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor after Rudy Giuliani in the early 2000s, did a lot to pick up the pro profile in New York City and make it hospitable for companies like Coca-Cola and, and, and Nestle to, you know, like subsidize parks and public spaces and, you know, do a lot of private endowment to create nice things, uh, uh, you know, clean up the waterways, make malls along the coast of the rivers, the shores of the rivers and things like that. And Coney Island was one of those places that was tough to gentrify because mm. it was really thought of as being, it's so far away. I mean, there are a few redoubts in New York City that are quite literally the furthest places you can get from what would you, the geographical heart of New York City. And I would say City Island up in the Bronx is one of those places. The, the tip of Staten Island, which is almost New Jersey, is one of those places. Places like the Rockaways out in Queens. Uh, I, I know I'm just rattling off geographic places here, but they may mean something to people who are from New York. But Coney Island is the last stop. I mean, it's actually the terminus of like two or three different subways. That's the kind of point is that they made it easy back when they built the subways to move the people of New York City to get to the beach back when they needed recreation in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and that sort of thing. You know, the, what it looked like in 1980, I mean, the frickin' Wonder Wheel and the Cyclone roller coaster, that stuff is still there today in situ. It's the same uh, as you would, they, they painted it, but it's the same metal structure. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no matter how much you gentrify this stuff, you can look at some parts of New York City and you see the urban archeology, span this sort of like witchcraft of New York still exists in some of these places. And Coney Island, I haven't spent a ton of time there, me and my wife would try to go there once every two years in the summertime for an afternoon, which is gorge ourselves on on ice cream and and Nathan's hot dogs and go on go on the cyclone a bunch of times, go on the Wonder Wheel and all that shit. But it's just, you know, it's a real special thing. It's one of the few places you can get a communion with like the shittier side of New York, even though it's nice today. Yeah. So then as they walk through the amusement park at Coney Island, Luther and the Rogues appear in their 55 Cadillac, and then we have one of the film's most famous scenes and just this really brilliantly offbeat moment of improvisation by David Patrick Kelly, something that Hill had asked him to do after the scene just wasn't working. Kelly had a neighbour, apparently, that used to taunt him in a similar way. And, and this is where that thing with the, the bottle comes from. That every time Kelly would leave his apartment, <laughs> this, this guy would be like, David, David Patrick Kelly. <laughs> it was just <laughs> something that Kelly was like, yeah, I, I, what can I do to amplify this? I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take those three beer bottles there. And then just something iconic was born. So then the warriors and the rogues face off on the beach and as Luther pulls the gun on Swan, Swan draws a switchblade and throws it at Luther, getting him in the arm and disarming him. Now, is this hill paying homage to something like Ujimbo? You know, it's sort of like that gunfight. And then the Gramercy riffs, they show up in force and then they tell the warriors that they're good. And obviously Swan replies, the best. And then they leave the riffs then to take care of the rogues and exact vengeance for the assassination of Cyrus. And then the warriors walk off 
We cut back once more to Lynn Thigpen's DJ, who drops the needle one last time, and we're done. She plays some some cool Joe Walsh rock and roll. Yeah, now that that song in the city, it was um, was it Barry Devorzon and Joe Walsh were friends, and he got Walsh into yeah that song. It, it, well, in fact, let's let, let's talk, Bill, about that soundtrack and the score by Barry Devorzon. Now he essentially created his own rock band for the film in terms of the musical styles he used. He was using synth throughout to punctuate these rock elements. He was blending the two styles together in a way that maybe only John Carpenter had done up until that point. And almost all the music has got this tempo that matches the tension of the warriors on the run throughout the city and there's this constant feeling of danger and and the songs were almost all recorded for the film including redos of existing songs such as nowhere to run as they couldn't afford the license of the original and that version actually has backing vocals from one luther vandross oh shit man yeah you know and you don't ever find yourself wishing for the original i i mean it's easy for me to say this now again we're, we're in 2024 i know it's not the original nowhere to run however it doesn't bother me that it's a cover because it, it feels like yeah. it's still it, it, it's it's it made it's made with so much care and love that it doesn't feel like second best or you know a sort of scoot around or trying to like license the music for me. Yeah, and and the score for the Warriors has always been one of my all time favorites. And you know, like in that episode of Family Guy where Peter Griffin gets his own theme music as he's walking around the town. <laughs> If James Horner's score from Commando isn't constantly playing in my head, then Barry DeVos on score for the Warriors is. You know, the thing about, you mentioned right at the top when they show you the Wonder Wheel, and there's that um, synthesizer, that really digital, discordant, paranoid sound. It has a really, that's the sound of high tension, almost like being given a note and being played by a by a, by an artist. And the mixture of synth and rock and roll, the, the, the you know, the, the electric guitars, the kind of stripped down quasi punk and or, you know, new wave type rock and roll sound that goes throughout this movie is a part of that brief moment in music scoring where people were willing to back away from traditional orchestral orthodoxy and engage in new sounds. I mean, I know that when Wendy Carlos, you know, Wendy Carlos did digital stuff for uh, Clockwork Orange, you know, like that was supposedly something that was very, you know, Wendy Carlos was doing traditional uh, pieces of classical music that were all played on a, on a gigantic mode synthesizer, probably the entire size of a room or a small office. Um, it, it was something that people thought was really uh, controversial because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't strings, it wasn't timpani, it wasn't horns, it wasn't all these things. And, you know, just a couple of years later, people are getting into it, like the, the vernacular of popular music, which I've made no bones of saying one of my favorite pop artists of all time is Keith Emerson, Emerson Lake and Palmer. And I think Keith Emerson did things with electronic instruments that people still have, they're still wrapping their heads around, how that could be used to make pop and rock music and prog music and stuff like that. And Emerson himself actually did a bunch of, he did a soundtrack for Dario Argento. He did one for Lucio Fulci later. He got into this, uh, and of course, Nighthawks, even even great, which was a mixture of synth and rock at the same time. So yeah, having this very stripped down, you know, like you, you would think that the the Warriors band could have been somebody playing at Mud Club or CBGB back in the day. It could have been one of the acts that you would have seen on a bill. It has that very New York sound. But again, it's uh, the the choice of music that Barry Devorzon uses almost 
borders on exploitation soundtracks. It does make me think of Goblin stuff or Fabio Fritzi stuff that he did for um, Italian Throw. You know, maybe some of the some of the not just the horror stuff, but the creamy the the Poliziotteschi movies and the, and the sort of spy movie knockoffs and these things. I love when electronic music gets into a little bit of that quasi exploitation soundtrack stuff. It's just this wonderful, delicious fusion that we just glanced with, and almost after Georgia Moroder does the stuff for Scarface, we kind of don't go back to synth music as soundtrack. Uh, it, it's almost quickly abandoned in the 1980s. It seems weird. They go right back to strings and horns and all that stuff. But this is right right in that sweet spot for me. Yeah. And, and you know, if the Volzon makes it to July this year, he's going to hit 90. The guy's still going. Wow. Oh, yeah. and uh, we didn't even mention, by the way, this is our second episode featuring Barry Devorzon, of course, uh, because he did the score to um, V, which is one of our most popular episodes yeah. of all time. Yeah. So a little bit about the film's release then. Famed critic Pauline Kael, who's often difficult to please, she loved the film. But in the days after the Warriors opened, there were several killings of youths which were attributed to gangs. And one particular group said, after killing the man, that they'd just seen the Warriors. And this then caused Paramount to initially pay for security at screenings of the film, which ended up causing more outbreaks of violence. And in some areas, the film was pulled entirely by both the theatres and Paramount. And I think ultimately three weeks later, Paramount just made the decision to pull it in most regions. And ultimately then the film wasn't the hit that Walter Hill had wanted. He'd have to wait until 48 Hours came out three years later for his first sort of major big hit. But certainly the film's cult following has grown and grown in the intervening 45 years. And it's definitely now a cult classic film, I think it's safe to say. Hill says, of all the things he's done, nothing has stuck with him as much as The Warriors has. That's saying quite a bit from that man. Yeah, and in a 2014 interview for Esquire magazine, he said that one of the most unusual things about the film is that it doesn't present the gang and gang structure as a social problem. It just presented it simply as a fact, as the way things were in this story that's being told, and not necessarily something negative. It's just accepted that the gang culture, as it's portrayed in the film, is done so as a defensive structure, not an offensive one. The formation of these gangs is a means of protecting people in this hostile world, and the gang here just want to make their way home. Now, one thing I want to mention is this is kind of comes from uh, an article I did on the, the website about the Warriors some years back. That this pervading influence of the film, because for me, most obviously, the Warriors had a huge influence on video games in the decade that followed. Scrolling beat em ups such as 1987's Double Dragon, and most clearly, I think, Capcom's legendary arcade game Final Fight, the scrolling beat em up from 1980, was essentially a redo of the Warriors. Yeah, total, total swipe, at least. The you know, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's got levels set on a train. It, it's got that same sort of look to the city, gangs everywhere. Although I think, you know, in, in Final Fight, it was just one all-pervading gang. I think pretty much every scrolling beat-em-up of the 80s and early 90s sprang from the Warriors and the influence of the film. So, Bill, where does the Warriors place for you then amongst Hill's filmography? I like this. Uh, yeah, this is this to me is the top of Hill, even though I love Sudden Comfort. I love Extreme Prejudice. Uh, you know, the guy's got a number of bangers. Uh, but, you know, Sudden Comfort is something I expect from him. Um, Extreme Prejudice is something I expect from him. The Warriors, even though we're sort of living in the shadow of this thing for decades and decades, it's kind of not what I expected of him. You know, it's reading a lot and listening a lot of what these guys talk about, like how Remar thinks about the movie now, how Deborah Van Valkenburg thinks about the movie. You know, they, they talk about it a little bit like, oh, it was a mess. It was a little chaotic, but it, it, like like it was almost 
they look back on it now with this thousand yard view of it's a success and we're living in a cult thing and i'm just pleased to be a, a member of a cult movie you know not everybody gets you know even one of these in their career much less a few and yet i think that you know that this movie was probably extremely shambolic to shoot and you know i just watching it I love seeing what apparently looks like a lot of disorganization, a lot of tension. You know, like at, at no point does this movie look like it was easy to shoot or was a sure thing about what they had in the can when they were finished with it. So the fact that these start, these parts come together, I don't know like what uh, Walter Hill's vision was at the beginning and then what, you know, what he had to make of the pieces he cobbled together through shooting, through all these difficult night shots with all the gangs and, and the squabbling, the, the tensions of the actors on set and how hard it was to do the physical stunts and not having enough money. It's like, I think all those things kind of create a magic that in, in, in its own way, doesn't really recreate itself in in his career. But it's it, that's great. I think that's, in a way, because it is so spontaneous, because it feels so left field. And, you know, there there is something about the hyperbot. You called it a hyper-real aspect of the gang warfare, where these guys are almost dressed up like clowns. You know, you talk about facial makeup and theming and, and just all this sort of weirdness where it's like, at this point, there are no humans in New York City. There are just gang members. You don't see a single civilian anywhere in this movie besides the people at night. You know, and, and it's like, I think of it as, well, it has all these ridiculous fa facets, these hyper-real cartoon character-type facets, video game sprites, if you will, to, to bring that back into it. Uh, and yet the grit of New York, the grit of it gives this reality to it that brings all those things down to the ground. The, the, the heat of the air at night, the, the wetness of the streets, the sort of, you know, how dirty the street, you know, how, how, how dirty the place looks. So the, the building fronts, the subway, you know, the, the, the subways have just been stepped on and not a dime had been put into them for decades and decades, you know, or rehabilitation or refurbishment or anything like that. And so just there's only little bits of magic that kind of make this, I think it's kind of a runaway in terms of I just really like this from Walter Hill just because it's uh, it stood the test of time for me. Well, yeah, you look at that six-film run, starting the hard times with Charles Bronson in 1975, then you've got The Driver, then The Warriors, then The Long Rinders, then Southern Comfort, then 48 Hours, and then Streets of Fire, which has got you know a, a really strong cult following. How then, because if you say you were surprised at Hill doing The Warriors, how the hell then did he do Brewster's Millions as his next film? Yeah, that's the weird thing. And, like, you know, you could even say, how the fuck did uh, Walter, uh, Richard Pryor wind up doing it? You know, almost yeah. like at the same time, you had a strange parody in their career where Walter Hill takes a... Maybe that was his version of, of a Christine or Starman, something he was doing for the guy, the man. Like, this is, I'll take a, a directing job, I'll do this gig... Uh, the way uh, uh, Peck and Paul did Osterman Weekend, you know, it's like, all right, it's not my script, but I'll see if I can make some magic out of it. And it's like, yeah. well, cle clearly he could not. But it's like, why not take a Richard Pryor at that point was like the biggest star in Hollywood. I can understand why you would take that. It's just that Walter Hill didn't make anything out of it, or at least he couldn't. There's just probably no way he could have made something out of it. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of my own thing of the film, my own opinion of the film, it's certainly my favourite Walter Hill film. I, I've drafted my favourite lists of, of, of decades, you know, in the, in the past, back when games like that were a common thing on film Twitter. And the Warriors would always feature there. You know, it would feature there alongside films like Jaws and The Godfather Part 2, you know. And it just, it's one of those films where I've just, it got its hooks into me at a young age. And I think I can look at it objectively for what it is. But also, I think it's just exceptionally efficient at what it does. And... 
like I said about my lamenting of the death of the you know the ninety minute film. You look at that those six or seven films I just reeled off. Then the average runtime is an hour and thirty five minutes. Yeah. You know, Walter Hill made he told lean stories on film, and I don't think there's any as lean as the Warriors. It just it's just effective. It keeps up a phenomenal pace from start to finish. It's just oozing with style. And God, it's gonna sound so lame, but it's it's iconic. It's a film that in fifteen or so years ago spawned a very late video game adaptation. It was a pretty dope video. I played it from end to end. It was pretty awesome, yeah. What does that tell you about the Warriors, that a film from 1979 in the, the sort of early 2000s can spawn its own video game adaptation? Maybe <laughs> they, you know, there's something about the film which has remained in the public consciousness. Uh, you know, Lords of Flatbush never got a, PS, a PS3 <laughs> uh, uh, video game adaptation. Yeah, and, and we, we, you know, we still await the Chinatown video game. <laughs> I would, you know, I would play that in a heartbeat. Although right we kind of did, didn't we, with that L.A. Noir game that came it out? It was, that was pretty close. That was yeah. also pretty. The lead actor wasn't quite up to the Jake uh, gets snuff, but yes, it was okay. Yeah. It did its job. So let's wrap things up then, Bill. Is there anything else uh, that we've missed out about the Warriors? No, I just think in summation, it's funny you mention all the things you're talking about because I wonder if there's a generational disconnect. Where, of course, you know, we can sit here and we have a. I think we are. Um, haven't been like-minded about this movie for a long time, even though we grew up thousands of miles away from each other, only, you know, pretty much the same age. So yeah, there, there's gotta be something about this that dug its hooks into us, you know, just, just our, it's right in, it plays into our taste and along a couple of different levels. Like there's so many things about this movie that intrigue me, you know, from the sound to the look, to the actors, to the atmosphere, to what it says about film, to the length, to the director. I wonder if younger people are, I mean, Christ, are they discovering any movies? But if they're discovering any movies or any sort of feature film as a history, as an art form, is this something people can go back to? Would they get stuck on the garishness of the costumes and the sort of hyper-real atmosphere? Or, you know, would it actually punch through if kids just fucking watch it? If they put down Netflix and Ginny and Georgia and... Stranger Things for 10 minutes. Is this something that would appeal? Because I think it's extremely easy. It doesn't really work on a couple of different levels. It really works on one and a half, two levels tops. You know, if anything would be, at, you know, uh, per perfect for a two screen experience or however younger people are watching stuff, this movie could be something people would watch and be able to track very easily. You know, it, it's not that it taxes the viewer, but it presents so much style that I feel like it could cross over to a whole new generation of people who may not otherwise be watching it. Yeah, and well, I think it says something that recently my 12-year-old has asked me about the Warriors. He says, Dad, what's the Warriors like? Is it any good? And where and how this film has popped up in this field of vision, I do not know, but yeah, man. clearly that's uh, that's my cue to uh, let him watch the film. <laughs> yes, I think so. So, Bill, where can people hit you up on social media if they want to uh, talk about any particular gang affiliations or your uh, experience on the New York subway? Yeah, I, I you know, we can um, we'll go out with spray paints and we'll, we'll let them know we were here. Make sure you drop that shit everywhere. We'll spray paint all over the place. If you find me on uh, Twitter at William Scurry, I'm on Facebook and Insta and, and all of the social media. Uh, and I have a podcast of my own, too, where I don't really talk about films so much, but I talk about popular culture. It's called I Don't Get It. And uh, we are on Twitter at Noah and Bill Show. Uh, but again, that's more about popular culture week from week, small bite-sized topics about things that are clearly not important and will not be important the week after we talk about them. But we give them a fair shot to see if there's anything to what's going on in today's culture. 
Great. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. That's Sky with an E. And you can find us all on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. Please check out the website, Film89.co.uk. And please, if you've enjoyed this episode and our past episodes, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much to the people who've left reviews of late. They've been uh, very humbling and just great to read and also thanks once again bill for your efforts on our last episode the return of the king episode uh there was i personally put so much pressure on myself to make sure that that lived up to the you know the other two and i think it just turned out better than i could have imagined so thank you and john and adam so much for your efforts on that one and and everyone who said very kind things about that episode it was very almost sad now that we're leaving middle earth behind yeah it's too bad there's no more movies to talk about it's really a shame such a shame someone should adapt the hobbit they really should (laughs) so that's it for now guys and girls thank you very much for listening stay safe be excellent to one another but more importantly stay classy boppers